Mark's Gospel, chapter number 12. <clears throat> For those of you that are new or joining us recently, I have been preaching through the chronological story of the life of Christ. And we have been in this story now for uh, about two, two years, uh, going on two and a half years. And just a couple weeks ago, we entered into the last week of the life of our Lord and his ministry. There's a lot more to go. Two of the major sermons that Jesus preached while he was on this earth take place in the last week of his life. Most people are familiar with the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We've already covered that. That actually took place at the beginning of the life of Jesus. At the end of the life of Jesus, there's two more messages. There's the Olivet Discourse, which is a prophetic message. And then there is the Upper Room Discourse, which is the, uh, the message to his disciples at the Last Supper. All of those are going to take us several weeks to go through. Uh, I, I am taking a break over Christmas and at the first of the year, and so we're going to finish this uh, uh, right around the end of April of this coming year. And, and you might think this is crazy, but I had a great week this week. I was able to receive some training, and I got all the sermons mark, mapped out all the way through October next year. I'm pumped, okay? So just watch out, everybody. Uh, we're going to finish that. Of course, I told you, as I told you before, we're going to be going to the book of Revelation next summer. And we're going to be plowing through that in about a 20-week series on the book of Revelation. And I'm sure excited about that. I don't know what it means, but I'm looking forward to preaching it, okay? And I, we'll get there. I'm just kidding. We, I know a little bit of that, I think. Uh, so it's going to be a great time. I said all that to tell you that sometimes, sometimes when you preach like this, meaning just book by book, chapter by chapter, uh, story by story, there comes a text that is very, very challenging. So I always give these little warnings because uh, I certainly don't want anybody to think that I'm singling anybody out about anything, okay? This is the next story. It's the next chapter. It's the next thing that happens. And so you might be tempted to think that at certain parts of the message, maybe. Uh, but uh, this is a very challenging parable that we're going to look at today. And, and I pray that you'll receive it. I pray that you'll receive it as I've had to this week and ask God to help you learn and grow from it, okay? Everybody okay? Y'all are looking at me really funny right now. I guess I didn't set it up well. Anyways, all right, Matt, Mark, we're in Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to spake to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and set and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. <clears throat> Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and they killed him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to the last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him 
and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. This is God's word. I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, testing the king's patience. Does anybody test your patience? This would not be a good time to look at your husband or wife. I can tell you what does it for me. Every time, every single time, go to McDonald's, every single time. I have no idea how or why or what is such a big deal, but they seem to make me mad every single time I go. We were on vacation this summer, and we pulled up to McDonald's uh, out in Missouri somewhere, and, and I just can't stand this situation. I mean, I'm already mad. I mean, I'm pulling to McDonald's. I've got kids. I've got five kids, so we eat at McDonald's all the time. It's the only place that we can spend like 25 bucks and feed everybody. We don't take orders. We don't ask questions. Nobody gets to say ketchup only. Uh-uh. You get, you get there's, there's only one choice here. You're all getting Happy Meals, regardless, including Angie. You're all getting Happy Meals. So there's only one question. You want a burger? Or do you want chicken nuggets? That's it. We're not, we're not talking about this and everybody's going to drink the same thing. We're not, we're not going to mix it because, I mean, as, as soon as you start saying stuff like, I want two Sprites, three Cokes, and a Diet Coke, it, it's going to get messed up. Absolutely, it's going to get messed up. And if you start saying, I want a burger with cheese, half a slice of cheese, and one third of a pickle, and, you know, four onions and five packs of ketchup, it's really going to get messy. So we just, so I, so I got the order, okay, we want three, it was three cheese, three cheeseburger Happy Meals, three chicken nugget Happy Meals, and, and I thought this was going to be the simplest thing, and it cannot get any simpler than this. I pulled up to the window, and I said, ma'am, I'd like six uh, Happy Meals, and I'd like three of them to be cheeseburgers, and three of them to be chicken nuggets, and I want everybody Fanta Orange, or whatever, whatever the drink was. And, 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 and she pulled up the screen, you know, you know at McDonald's now, they, they have this like, fact check screen so that you can see if they understood what you said and and it pulled up and it said like uh, you know six chicken nugget happy meals and I said ma'am um, she says everything looked good on the screen I said no no actually it doesn't I said I wanted three cheeseburger happy meals and three chicken nugget happy meals and and on the screen it says six chicken nugget happy meals she said oh no we got it right here I said okay so we pulled up to the uh, to the checkout, the, to the line, and she she takes my card, and, and we paid for it. And she said, do you want a receipt? My wife answered for me and said, yes, we want a receipt. They hand the receipt through the window, and sure enough, it says six chicken nugget Happy Meals. And Angie looks to me and says, look, it's what it says. And I said, ma'am, look, I just want to be sure. Now, I mean, I, I trust you and everything, but... Yeah, this is supposed to be three chicken nugget Happy Meals and three cheeseburger Happy Meals. This says six chicken nugget Happy Meals, so just making sure. And I handed her the receipt. I said, I want you to look at this. I handed her the receipt. She pulls the receipt in. She looks at it and says, it says cheeseburger right here. And I said, ma'am, I am telling you, it does not say cheeseburger on the receipt. 
as nicely as I could. <laughs> I said, fine. She then says those famous words, can you please pull forward to the spot that says one? And of course, now I'm way beside myself. And of course, she comes out, no, actually sends another guy who comes out and hands the six Happy Meals through the window. And of course, they were, yep, you guessed it, six chicken nugget Happy Meals. And I just stopped the dude, he was like an 18-year-old dude, you know, he's from high school, just working his job. I said, man, look, I know you didn't have anything to do with this, okay, and I know that really this is not your problem. You're just the messenger. I'm not trying to kill the messenger here, but I'm just telling you, man, this has been an ongoing issue for the last several minutes. I need three of these taken back right now, and I need them changed for cheeseburger Happy Meals, okay? And he did. McDonald's. Look, if you want me to get mad, if you don't like me, give me a McDonald's gift card for Christmas, okay? If you hate me, then I'll just know right away. We don't have to be, we don't have to like dance around it. We don't have to be passive aggressive. If you hate me, get me a McDonald's gift card, okay? And I'll burn it right in front of you. I just, it just drives me nuts. I, 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 I don't know about you, but there's places like that, there's people like that. Just test your patience. Aren't you glad God's patient with you? You know, the Bible says God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient. He's long suffering, which literally means his, his fuse burns long. It doesn't take, it has to, there's a lot. It would take to make God mad. Aren't you glad for that? Because the truth of the matter is, I know in my life, I've done enough. I have said enough. I have sinned enough. I have messed up enough to justify God being very, very, very upset with me. But did you know? That while God is long-suffering and absolutely incredibly patient to a degree that we probably will never fully understand, you can test God's patience. In this story, we find the Pharisees come to Jesus back in chapter number 11 and they ask Jesus about the authority behind his message. And we know from Jesus' response that this was a critical, cynical question, one of a series of many questions that they had asked Jesus trying to trap him, trying to trip him up, ultimately displaying their final rejection of who Jesus is. Jesus, of course, deals with their question, and then immediately in chapter 12, he's going to share this parable with them. And you got to understand, the parable is directed at the Pharisees. The parable about the, 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 the vine dressers, the vine dressers are the Pharisees. They're the ones that God entrusted to his field, which is Israel. Of course, the owner of the field is God himself. The servants in this story are the messengers, the prophets, that have come to Israel repeatedly and have tried to call them back to repentance and faith in God. To try to bring restoration to Israel. And repeatedly Israel mocked them and threw stones at them and killed many of them. So finally 
What does God do? He sends his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, to them. And what do they do to him? They kill him. And what does God do with those that push him so far down the edge that his patience has completely worn out? That is what we're going to look at today. And frankly, it's a place you don't want to ever be. How does God deal with people that test his patience? Number one, I want you to see God wisely explains his nature to his doubters. God wisely explains his nature to his doubters. Notice, if you will, back in verse number 27 of chapter 11. We're going to skim through this real quick. It says, then he came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking to the temple, the chief scribes and priests and elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? I want you to know that God always wisely deals with people who doubt what he is doing. One thing that I can say about this passage of scripture that we can all rejoice in is God is not afraid of a challenge. And I can tell you this today, God's truth can withstand scrutiny. Meaning, God's word is true, Jesus Christ is the Savior, and I am not afraid to field questions regarding that because as I have been formally studying the Bible for decades now, I can tell you that I have found my answers under complete satisfaction. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And when people come to Jesus or come to a church or come to pastors questioning and doubting the truth, we should not be afraid of that. We should be okay with that. But there's one thing you should also know, is that God deals with people differently depending on the nature and the spirit of their doubts. Folks, listen, I want you to understand this. It's okay and likely that you will have doubts in your life. I think of John the Baptist as an example. Interestingly enough, Jesus is going to bring up John the Baptist, isn't he? They say, by what authority do you do these miracles? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. By what authority did John do his miracles? Now, I'm going to tie this together in just a minute, but I think it's interesting that John brings up Jesus as another man who doubted him at one point. Remember that? In fact, we preached about it uh, maybe about a year ago. And, and when John comes to Jesus, he's in jail and he sends his disciples and says, Ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? And what does Jesus say back to John? Look at what's happening. Look at the miracles. Look at the work. Look at the word. Oh, yes, I am he. Aren't you glad that if you come with genuine questions about Christ, he can fulfill them, he can satisfy them, he can answer. Aren't you glad that in every case of our lives, Jesus is the answer? Aren't you glad to know that Jesus quotes to, 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 to John the Baptist there, messianic prophecy, he roots John's doubt in the word of God. If you've got doubts today, I'm here to tell you, the answer is Jesus, and the answer about Jesus is found in the word. He pushes John to scripture, he roots John in the word of God. Oh, listen, friend, Jesus was not afraid of John's question, why? Because John was doubting under duress. Well, nothing will make you doubt like duress. Nothing will make you question your call. Nothing will make you question God. Nothing will make you question what's going on in your life other than duress, stress. 
difficulty. John was in jail. He was going through a problem. And then guess what? Not only does Jesus provide an answer for somebody that comes like that, Jesus becomes the advocate for somebody like that. I love what Jesus says to those doubters. He says, let me ask you a question. Who did you think John was? Did you think John was a reed shaking in the wind? Did you think he was a silk-clad and palace worker? He says, no, 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 that's not who John was. John is a rugged, sturdy tree. He is a man of God. He is going through doubts like all of us do. Friend, you're going to have doubts. No doubt about it. But see, doubting when you have faith and doubting when you really love God is one thing. But doubting because you are a critic and you are cynical and because you are trying to undermine who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing is a completely other thing. The Pharisees doubted because they had rejected clear evidence of the Holy Spirit of God. And friends, when they say, by what authority do you do these works, there's no question Jesus has already said this. How did Jesus raise people from the dead? How did Jesus cleanse lepers? How did Jesus cause lame people to walk again? Come on. How did Jesus raise dead little girls back to life again? How did Jesus calm storms on the Sea of Galilee? How did Jesus bring a storm-tossed boat in the Sea of Galilee immediately to land? And what the disciples spent eight to ten hours toiling and rowing about, Jesus solved in like one half of a second. Why did he do that? How did he do that? It's very simple. He's God. And if you're still now here at this point, Picking at, nitpicking, neglecting, criticizing every little thing Jesus did. Trying to undo what clearly he has already done. And watch this. When Jesus brings up John the Baptist, it is a very, very clever tactic that he uses. He says, let me ask you a question. The things that John the Baptist did, by what authority did he do them? And they freeze. Oh no. What are we going to do here? Well, if we say it's from God, then he's got us because John preached about him. But if we say it's of men, then, then the then Israel's going to basically run us off because they all love him. Now, why is this important? It is important because John was performing his sermons and his miracles under the power of God and was the one that proclaimed that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. So what is going on here? Jesus has caught them in a trap. They want to know why, what authority he did. And basically what he's saying is, you already know the answer to this question. You already know it because you know who John was. You know that John was a prophet. You know that John was anointed by God. And you know that John's message was about me. So if you affirm John, you've got to affirm me. And Jesus ties them up in a pretzel. Watch it. He wisely deals with people that doubt him. Number two, how does Jesus deal with people that test his patience? Number two, God graciously provides his world for our benefit. My goodness, folks, how in the world could we miss what the Bible says at the beginning of this parable in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he talks about how God, the owner of the field, provided the field, gave the field for our good, took special measures to care for it, watch it, dug a hedge around it, put a place for the wine vat, a place where they could actually press out the wine, build a tower to keep out people that were enemies. And then, so God, God wonderfully and, and graciously gave these people a piece of land. He specially cared for the land. He saw to it that it was good, that it was going to produce fruit. And then, and, then, and then get this, he leased it out. He lovingly trusted people to care for the vineyard. 
You want to know what you would say about all of this wrapped up into one thing? God was really, really, really good to Israel. God loved them. He cared for them. He made special provision for them. He watched out for them. He saw to it that they could bear fruit. He gave these people, particularly the Pharisees, care over God's people. Church, I just want to say this to you today. We are not Israel. I recognize that. But you could not miss this if you wanted to. God has been good and gracious to you. Has he not? Has he not given you? Has he not trusted you, entrusted to you uh, wealth and health and blessings? Has he not given to all of us ministry and service? Has he not protected us, cared for us, watched for us, watched out for us, built a hedge around us, taken care of us? How does God, come on, how does God deal with people that, that, that test his patience? He's good to them. That's how he deals with them. Friend, i got to tell you, you can do whatever you want. You will never stop God being good to you. Because God's goodness to you is not based upon how good you are. Come on. It's based upon how good he is. He's just good. And there ain't nothing our carnal hearts can do about that. You'll never make God stop loving you. You could be the most wicked person in this room and you will never stop God from loving you. You could be the most carnal Christian in this room, and you've never stopped God from loving you. You could be one of the very people described in this parable, and it still doesn't stop God from being good to you. And friend, i got to tell you something. If you start trying to associate God's blessing and God's benefit in your life with your goodness, you are going to become, first of all, a very legalistic, critical person. Number two, you're going to become a very doubt-filled, negative person, filled with guilt and shame. Friend, both sides are never where you want to be in your life. Nobody wants to become a critical Pharisee who thinks they're better than everybody else. And nobody wants to become somebody who's so filled with guilt and shame that they cannot even look themselves in the mirror. Friend, look up. You are a child of the living God. You are under his love. You are under his care. You are under his goodness. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't run away from it. You can't sin your way out of it. God is, somebody better help me up here. God is just that good, isn't he? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. He's just good. But number three, you start to see the parable turn a little bit because God wisely deals with those who doubt him. God graciously provides for all of our benefits regardless of who we are. But then number three, watch this. God then patiently endures the mistreatment of his servants. God patiently endures the mistreatment of his servants. Look, if you will, at verse number two. Now, at vintage time, harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. Remember, the vine dressers are the Pharisees, or, or they are the spiritual leaders of Israel. They have obviously erred in their faith. You can read about this in Jeremiah. You can read about this in Ezekiel. They were shepherds according to their own selfishness. 
They used the sheep. They fleeced the sheep. They didn't care for the sheep. You read the New Testament, and the people were scared of the Pharisees. They were frightened. They were beat up. They were like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus said, why? Because they didn't have a shepherd. They had a religious establishment. They had a, a bureaucracy. They had a political identity, but they were not shepherds. And what is God saying here? Even in your worst, I sent you servants. And not only did he send servants, he sent servants over and over and over again. Did you read that? I mean, notice it again. It says he sent a servant. They mistreated him. Verse 4, and again, he sent to them another servant. And they threw stones at him and wounded him. Verse 5, and again, he sent another. Oh, y'all, y'all should listen. Listen to that word again. How many times has God sent a servant your way to check you? How many times has a faithful servant of God filled with the Spirit, spoke the Word of God, made a phone call, had a meeting, and sat down to correct your strain heart? I remember I was about 15 years old. I wasn't a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 19. I was 15. I grew up in church. My parents went to church. The, the pastor of their church in my middle school teenage years, who happens to be the guy who also led me to Christ later, is this bigger-than-life, gregarious guy. He's the most awesome person that I know. He's happy. He's the happy person. How many of you need somebody to be happier around you, right? I mean, he's just a happy guy. Seriously, super happy. And I'll never forget this. I was, a, I was 15. I was, over, I was over in South Charleston, West Virginia, at the bottom of the hill where we all went to high school. There was a Taco Bell right down the hill, not McDonald's. There was a Taco Bell right down the hill, at the bottom of the hill. And I was hanging there with some friends, just being an absolute punk, an absolute loser. That's the best way to describe me. And I'll never forget this. I was paying no attention. All of a sudden, I just hear, Brian Sams! And I'm like, What? And I look over, and there he is, that preacher, that happy, gregarious preacher, stomping through Taco Bell with suit, tie, big giant smile. He reaches down in the booth and hugs my neck off, and I'm in, in front of all my friends, and I'm like, what on earth is going on here? And, 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 and he invited me to church, he gave me literature about the church, and I blew him off. I treated him like he was stupid. Like I was disinterested. About a year later, my grandfather had a massive heart attack. He had four bypass surgeries. He was a brutal, tough dude. When I was growing up, I just thought he was the most awesome person. He was amazing. Big, strong, tough dude. When he had, when he had a heart, major heart attack, had four, he was getting ready to go in for the quadruple bypass surgery. In between the heart attack and the surgery, he got saved. Y'all ain't even listening to me. He, he got saved, like, complete. he was 69 years old. He got transformed like that, and, I'm, and God let him live 11 more years. He died right around his 80th birthday, and, and I mean, he was a faithful man of God, church going, teaching. I mean, it was just an amazing story. Well, 
when I was 16, all I knew about him was rough grandpa. I mean, they're like, sadly though, they're the kind that would like drop a little beer in your bottle when you were two. You know, that kind of thing, just to kind of see how it went. Seriously, that's kind of the way this thing was. So my mom and dad made me go over to the hospital before his surgery because it was a very delicate, delicate surgery, very serious surgery. And I'm standing there like a 16-year-old punk in the side of the room. I'm not saying anything to anybody. They're all praying or whatever they're doing. I'm just like over here completely oblivious to everything that's going on. And my grandpa looked up after prayer and said, I want everybody to leave the room except for Brian. So I kind of walked over to my papa's bedside and he reached up and grabbed me by the hand and he said, I want you to know, son, I was where you are. You're heading down the wrong path. You need to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ right now. You need to get right with God. Boy, I mean, he pelted me hard. Somehow I found a way to slither out of that room. And go on. But friend, when God wants you, he's going to catch up with you somewhere or the other. <laughs> Obviously, he got me somewhere, didn't he? About three years later, he got me and finally he pinned me up and, got, and I said yes. And I thank God for everything he had to do to get my attention. I thank God for every messenger that came my way, everybody, come on, everybody that cared about me, everybody that prayed for me, everybody that preached to me, everybody that told me about Jesus, everybody that loved on me. Oh, but watch it. His servants get mistreated. They took the first one and beat him. Boy, I've never been physically beaten, but I have been verbally beaten. Y'all can say amen anytime. Watch this. They threw stones at him and wounded his head. You just do it sometime when you are got some time. Just look up polls and statistics about emotional tolls. On God's servants. It's striking. It's like 80% of pastors believe the ministry has negatively affected their marriage. 80% of pastors will not make it five more years than they are right now. 43% experience at least one confrontational, harsh conversation either directly to them or about them every month. Throwing stones. And please, I'm going to say this one more time, and I'm going to say it again. There's not one ounce of self-serving in what I'm getting ready to say. This is in the Bible. This is the next thing. And I'm not saying what I'm getting ready to say because somebody's doing this to me. But listen to me very carefully. You better watch out throwing stones at God's servants. You better watch out. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 talks about division in the church and people that run their mouth. 
then in chapter 3, he says, when you destroy the temple of God, you yourself will be destroyed. And, and look, I'm just preaching the text that's here. God's people sadly sometimes reject and harm God's servants. That's exactly what this is, the prophets. People will implicitly or dis explicitly disrespect God's servants. Speaking publicly or demeaningly about them. Hey friend, listen. God's servants are always under the attack of the devil. They shouldn't be under your attack. Always demanding that church programming goes in a way that you want. Therefore, trying to undermine, criticize, be negative towards spiritual leadership. Criticizing and blaming spiritual leadership for the deficiency of your own soul. Complaining about vacations and salaries and sermons. Griping, trying to stir other people up. Throwing stones. I thank God that I have nothing in mind here when I'm saying this to our church. I have before. But let this be a warning that came directly from God to you. Don't throw stones at God's servants. 2 Chronicles 36, 16, they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up on the people and there was no remedy. Hebrews 11, some men of God were tortured, refusing to accept release, they might rise again to a better life. Some suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in half, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, watch this, of whom the world was not worthy? I don't deserve any preacher, any, God, any of God's servants that have ever come into my life. I wasn't worthy of that. And I want to treat God's servants so they didn't treat God's servants well so then what happened watch this so then the king says okay well they're not listening to my servants maybe they'll listen to my son so they've mistreated they've tortured, they've beaten, they've thrown stones at the servants. And he says here in, in verse number uh, 6, Therefore, having one son, his beloved, he also sent to them last, saying, They will respect my son. Surely you'd think that you would respect God's son. But you know what I found? People that don't respect God's servants don't respect God's son. Now, here's what I was going to tie in from earlier. I think this is interesting. When Jesus brought up John the Baptist, watch this. It was so clever. Because he tied him up. They don't want to mess with John the Baptist. But the problem was, they did mess with John the Baptist. And what he was basically saying was, you don't want to say this negative against John the Baptist, but the problem is, when you do, you're actually saying it against me. So, friend, here's the bottom line. When you disrespect a servant of God, 
you disrespect the God of the servant. There is no one who speaks ill of God's men who is not also speaking ill of God himself. You know what's funny about these kinds of things? I've been around, I've been around a while. You know what I just say to people? Like, this is not rocket science. If you're not happy at a church, Lord have mercy. Go be happy. <laughs> I mean, it, it is not that difficult. Look, I've been in churches where I've had problems. God is my witness. Eight years at a church, when I resigned, everybody was shocked. And it's not because I didn't have problems. Because I recognized the churches were imperfect, and I recognized the pastors were imperfect. And I recognized as long as I was there, I was going to speak well of. I was going to support, even in areas I didn't even agree with. And when it came a point where I couldn't do that, the most obvious thing was, I have to go somewhere else. Now God says, okay, I'm going to send my son. And guess what they did? They crucified his son. Now watch this. Not only do they patient, did God patiently endure the mistreatment of his servants. Finally, and listen, God ultimately judges wicked people in his wrath. This is when his patience is gone. You want to know what it looks like when God's patience is gone? I'll tell you right now. It's hell. God's ultimate patience is over. When he unleashes all of pent up wrath stored up. Revelation talks about it, friend. It talks about how that God will trample out in the vintage of his wrath, his judgment. And friend, listen, God loves us all and God is patient with us all. That's why I'm not in hell yet. But friend, I can push it so far, so long, that ultimately one day, that's it. And so they kill the son, which to me is an illustration ultimately of the ultimate blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you can go back and listen to the sermon I preached on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's the ultimate and final rejection of the Son of God. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Christ is God. Christ is the Savior. It is true. He's the only way to heaven. You can, you can reject that if you want to, and God will be patient with you. He will ultimately love you and continue to bear with you. But one day you'll say no for the final time. Hebrews 10 says this, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of his covenant whereby he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. That's where you don't want to be this morning. Church, I'm talking to somebody here. You come to church here, but you've never come to Jesus Christ. Please listen very carefully. Jesus is not a common thing. The blood is not a common thing. The spirit that draws you is not a common thing. 
He says at the end, ultimately, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. Listen very carefully to this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then watch this. But in the midst of this very dark statement, watch this. Have you not read this in the scripture, verse 10? The stone which the builders rejected, watch this now, has become the chief cornerstone. Oh, absolutely, listen, it meant doom for some, but it didn't mean doom for everybody, because some were going to see it as it was. The stone that they tripped over into hell became the cornerstone that we built. Are, are y'all even hearing me today? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Our answer is Jesus. The same one that people reject and stumble over and mistreat and abuse his servants is the very same one that becomes the cornerstone and the foundation of our faith. Other foundation can no man lay than, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the rock of our salvation. And come to him today. If, you, if you're here, but you've just been listening and you've been pushing and testing, listen, my warning to you today is that patience has a line. My prayer is that you don't cry. Let's go ahead and pray. 